Well, good morning. It's good to see you in worship. We're going to be in Luke for uh, the bulk of the beginning part of the message here. And uh, we'll start out in Luke 15 in just a second here, so uh, keep your thumb there in Luke 15 uh, until we uh, get there in just a couple minutes. Got a bit of a contraption up here because I'm going to I'm going to show you a little something to introduce our uh, series, uh, to introduce our sermon topic today. We're going to be talking about radical giving. This is week three in a series called Radical. It's based on a book uh, called Radical, Taking Back Your Faith from the American Dream. Um, I suggest you buy a copy and uh, read it, share it with your spouse. I want to start with uh, a word of prayer as we uh, jump in here together into the word this morning. Let's go ahead and pray. Lord God, it is our desire first and foremost to glorify you. We want hearts whose designs and affections take take their cue from you and your character and your nature. But Lord, we have hearts that seek after things that are poor imitations of you. And so we're here gathered as the body of Christ to recenter, to refocus, to be taught by the Holy Spirit this morning. We ask that you would use our time in the Word this morning to shape us and to make us more and more like the people you've created us to be, that we would be people whose designs are for living out to your character and your nature instead of our own selfish designs. We ask this in the name of your Son, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, some of you probably, like me, uh, grew up in a church setting where you learned this little song. You've probably been taught this song as a kid. Uh, I knew it as, I am the church, you are the church. Apparently, the official title is, uh, The Church is Not a Building. And some of you probably know this song. It goes like this. The church is not a building. The church is not a steeple. The church is not a resting place. The church is a... Oh, well, I have three of you. The church is a people. Yes, the church is a people. And, and the, uh, the chorus says, I am the church. You are the church. We are the church together. All who follow Jesus all around the world. Yes, we're the church together. And the point of that song was something I think I intuited and just kind of picked up from that as a kid. And it's simply this. The church is not this structural stuff. The church is not the programs we have available here. The church is more than the things you see that you give money to, that you provide your time to support, that your efforts and your energies and your resources and your gifts help support, the church is a people. And I want to make this point clear here on the screen. Here is how we generally think of church. The danger of this is that many of us begin to think of the church as a building that we go to that has programs and structures that we put together to build 
A church. That's how you build a church. You put some people together, you have programs, you have structures, you have a building, and that's what we begin to call church. The danger is that as people, and uh, we'll give this guy sort of an incredulous, oh no, it's 815 look. Uh, People come to the building and they give of their time and their money and their resources to the building, to the environment, to the, the programs. They may even give, bring their gifts, their spiritual gifts, and, and how they use those things given to us by God to help the church. We give of our time and our money and our efforts and our resources. We'll make that about 8.15 there early in the morning. That's supposed to be a clock. So this is how we begin to think about church and the direction of our efforts and our energies. We hire somebody like me to be the pastor. We begin programs. And what we begin to think about as church is that this pastor runs the program. And when we get big enough, what we have to do is we have to pay that pastor. And as we add programs, we have to add pastors. And what happens over time is that these programs and these structures and these buildings, what they end up doing is they they become a container that hold these gifts, this money, these people, and their time. You can lose yourself inside this container and begin to think of this environment like this. What happens over time is that these programs and these buildings and these structures become containers that hold the resources of God in. It's almost like we are taking people and their money and their resources and their time and their gifts and we're keeping them here. And that's what often happens in churches. And what happens... When this occurs, is these people out here who are lost and they have frowny faces and they don't know who God is, there's nobody out going to get those people. This is what happens to churches over time. We petrify around half of the battle. Half of the battle. What we do get is these people, smiley faced people who already know God and they know the drill and they like our programs. That's who we get. Those people come. These people do not. That's how it works easily for us in churches when we fight half the battle. But Jesus commanded us to be people who go. Jesus commanded us to be people who go in the Great Commission. The truth of the Gospel is too good to keep to ourselves. So throughout the New Testament, the Gospels, the church is told to go. Paul speaks of a body being equipped 
being equipped by its leadership, by its pastors, by its teachers, by people within the body bringing their gifts and their money and their resources and their time so that they can be sent out. That is Ephesians 4 ministry. It's Ephesians 4, 11 to 16 kind of ministry where pastors and teachers and evangelists and people are building up and equipping the body. That is when the second half of the battle for us as believers and as the corporate body of Christ begins to be waged. What does it look like for us to go outside of these walls? You see, this is a, this is a radical redefinition for some of us of our assumptions about what we do here. Instead, instead of having a paid mercenary who does what I don't want to have to do or I don't like to do or I don't feel comfortable doing, the church begins to equip itself so that instead of this picture, the picture looks a little bit more like this. This is what happens when Ephesians 4, 11 to 16 ministry, that second half of the battle, begins to be waged in our lives and in our churches. What happens is that we all become pastors and ministers. All of us. 1 Peter 2.5 says, You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. You are ministers. And when we begin to wage that second half of the battle in our lives and as a church, we become people who go. Think of it this way. You are full-time paid staff at First Christian Church. You are paid full-time staff as a part of the body of Christ at large. You think I'm joking. I'm totally serious, and I mean paid. You may not still receive a paycheck. You may be retired. But, but regardless of where your money says that it comes from, regardless of where your money says that it comes from, whether it says First Christian Church on your paycheck or Greenville City Schools or Green Bank or such and such pension fund or Lincoln Financial, wherever that paycheck comes from, whether it's Social Security or anything else, that paycheck is God's money. Call it what you will, but that money is God's alone. And that money, like all of our resources in our lives, is redirected through somebody else to be used by you for the sake of His glory. So, every single one of us, our entire lives, that we've followed Jesus, have been paid full-time staff. What this means is that God gave us these things. We gather as the people, bringing together our resources of time, of money, of our gifts, of our people, we bring together these resources for the purpose of going out. And to reclaim our lives for the sake of the gospel in American Christianity, where we are sold a bill of goods about the American dream to make us happy, we must begin to think about that for our lives and for our churches. 
if we are to reclaim the truth of what the gospel means for us. You see, God gave to us so that we could give to others. He gave to us so that we could give to others. God gave us these gifts to equip us to minister on his behalf. It's why you're called, and I am called, the body of Christ. Equipped to minister on his behalf. It's Abraham in Genesis 12, blessed to be a blessing. And this relates to our diagram here. It means that we come together, we bring together all of these resources of people, etc., money, etc., our gifts. We bring them all together in our time. And we put them in here, but instead of keeping them here, these resources are meant to be equipped to be part of the equipment we use so that we can go out into the world and do what he's called us to do. To go out. All of us. To be equipped to be ministers and pastors. All of us. What we see in the text today and how this relates to Luke 16 especially in our passage today, is that Jesus has called us to a different kind of life. You see, lots of churches get stuck stuck with that first diagram because it's comfortable, it's fun, it's easy for us to just love one another. And that's good. And we enjoy that. It is much harder. It is much harder. And yet much more important for us to love those we don't yet know and who don't know Jesus. And if we don't begin to fight that second battle in our lives personally and as a congregation corporately, we have done half the work. In fact, we have hoarded the gospel and our resources for us. That's the bottom line in the passage today. That's the bottom line in the passage today that we will talk about. Is that God has given us resources for the sake of his cause and his kingdom and not for our own purposes. So I want you to turn with me to Luke 15. To Luke 15, we'll we'll set a background, a context here for our passage quickly. Luke 15, just the first uh, couple verses there, this is where tax collectors and sinners were gathering. And I want us to look at this passage as the context for our story, and then we'll read the story. And I want you to read that story given this background that we'll talk about in just a second. And and then we'll talk about some other ways throughout Scripture where we, we, we hear about the heart of God in how he loves to care for the poor and the needy. How he loves to give. How he loves to be a God who provides for those who cannot provide for themselves. And he loves to use the body of Christ to do it. Luke 15, first verse. This is about background here. Turn with me there. Tax collectors and sinners are gathering. And it says this in verse 1 of chapter 15. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him, that is Jesus. But, verse 2, the Pharisees and the scribes, they grumbled. They grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Apparently, that was the best thing the Pharisees could have said 
to denigrate Jesus' character. It was the most damaging thing they could come up with to say that that guy eats with sinners. Can you believe that? So the religious establishment here were the people that were criticizing Jesus. They were criticizing him for wasting time, for wasting time with what they considered the dirty and poor and unrighteous scum. Yes, scum is the kind of word that some rabbis used to talk about those who did not have the blessing of God. So Jesus goes on to tell the religious establishment, to tell them that they are, in fact, the self-righteous and unrepentant sinners and not the supposed scum and poor that they were ignoring. In fact, he goes on to tell them at the beginning of Luke 15 that heaven rejoices over the repentance of scummy, unrighteous people. That idea was so, so different than their expectations of what they wanted, what they wanted of God. And the rest of Luke 15, Jesus tells them that they, in fact, they are the ungrateful older brother who was angry at God's forgiveness and grace. Not just skeptical, not just sort of incredulous, but the older brother was downright self-righteously anger, angry at, at the father. In the beginning of Luke 16, we're setting the context here. Luke 16, it says that they cannot serve both God and money. Apparently for the Pharisees, that love of money was a motivating factor for their disgust at Jesus receiving sinners. So don't miss that that, that piece. It shows us their hearts. Their love of money was a motivating factor for why they ridiculed Jesus and they criticized him and they grumbled at him. So we come to almost our passage, almost there. Luke 16, verse 14. So, so the religious establishment, knowing full well that Jesus is ripping them to shreds, they respond this way. Verse 14 in chapter 16 of Luke. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, they heard all these things and they ridiculed him. And then Jesus says this, 15th verse, just a few verses before our parable today. He says, you are those who justify yourselves before men. But God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. These were the most devout and religious and moral people you could have found on the planet. And Jesus is speaking these words to their face, looking at them, directing a parable at them, and speaking these words. Luke 16, 19 to 31. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate... Apparently he owned this place. At his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores. Lazarus was there to get some help, obviously, at the gate. Verse 21, Lazarus, covered with sores, desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, 
Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. Verse 24, and he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to, to simply dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things. And Lazarus, in like manner, bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, verse 26, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able. And none may cross from there to us. And he said, this is the rich man, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Jesus is speaking to religious people who are so blinded by their affluence, by their love of money, that they justify that love in the middle of their religious devotion. Do not miss that. Jesus is speaking to religious people who are so blinded by their own affluence, by their own promiscuous love affair with stuff, that they justify their own affluence in the middle of their religious devotion. Jesus is holding up a picture, he's holding up a mirror. He's giving us a story against which we are to see ourselves. So there's a divine contrast that he's making that dominates this story. And that's at the heart of this story for us today. That is this. God responds to the needs of the poor with compassion. God responds to the needs of the poor and the needy with compassion. And that God responds to those who neglect the poor with condemnation. Those in this story, in this parable, in the wider context to whom Jesus is speaking, those who are listening are blinded by their love of money so much so that they cannot understand what is meant by being condemned for neglecting the poor. Lazarus is the only character named in a parable told by Jesus. And it's a telling point. It's an important point. His name means God is my helper. His name means God is my helper. So 
So the central point of this passage is that we serve a God who compassionately cares for the needs of those who have no relationship with him, who do not have what they need. Now, this point does not mean that those who do not help the poor enough are not believers. It doesn't mean that. As if we earn salvation by being good enough or by helping the poor enough. If I just give a little more to the poor and needy, then I will be saved. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is I'm holding up this picture. This is the heart of God. The heart of God cares for these people who have a need, and yet you do not. While we are sitting here for one hour in worship, almost 1,000 children will die simply of starvation, which is the number one cause of death for children worldwide. Almost 30,000 per day, 30,000 children per day die of starvation and other easily preventable diseases. It is estimated that the wealth in American Christianity could take care of all 30,000 of those kids multiple times over for the next 50 years without even blinking an eye. Despite the scale of a daily catastrophe of 30,000-ish children dying, have you ever heard that headline in your local paper or online or in the news? unless you looked for it. While that is happening, while hundreds of thousands of children are dying in the last week or so, Americans are spending $300 million on Halloween costumes for their pets. We are driving cars that each one of us exceed our need by literally thousands of dollars. The average meal in America for the last three or four years has been eaten out and not made at home at almost double the expense of eating in. I'm as guilty as anybody. Americans are approaching almost half of their income on entertainment and other non-essentials. The average church in 1920 gave 10% of its total income to missions. The average church nowadays, nowadays gives two. The average Christian American now gives just over 2.3% to the ministry of the local church. Survey after survey after survey shows that Americans are primarily concerned, one of their number one concerns in life is comfort and security. While moral issues are almost the bottom. Friends, personal holiness and living in a way that expresses the character and the nature of God are now highly, is now highly unfashionable. And it shows. It shows in how we use our money. If we indulge ourselves and we neglect the poor, this earthly existence will be the sum total of our reward. Jesus says it in the parable. 
I want you to hear some passages that reveal God's heart for the poor. I want you to hear some passages I'm going to read to you that, that just reveal how God feels about the poor and the needy. Proverbs 21:13. Whoever closes his ear to the cry of the poor will himself call out and not be answered. Proverbs 28:27. Whoever gives to the poor will not want, but he who hides his eyes will get many a curse. Psalm 140. I know that the Lord will, remain, will maintain the cause of the afflicted and execute justice for the needy. Ezekiel 18, as I live, declares the Lord God, your sister Sodom and her daughters have not done as you and your daughters have done. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and the needy. The sin of Sodom and Gomorrah was more about Americanized kind of excess then we think, Matthew 25, sheep and goats, when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, this is Jesus speaking, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations and He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates sheep from goats. And He will place the sheep on His right but the goats on His left. Then the King will say to those on His right, Come, you who are blessed by My Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food, thirsty, and you gave me drink, stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me, sick, and you visited, in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. And then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil, and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. Thirsty, you gave me no drink. Stranger, you did not welcome. Naked, you did not clothe. In prison, and sick, and you did not visit. And then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry, thirsty, stranger, naked, sick, in prison? When did we see you and did not minister to you? And he will answer, saying, Truly I say, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. Stern words from the heart of God spoken through the Lamb who laid down His life. We have a choice to make. We can continue in a hollow religiosity and moralistic duty that keeps our resources in and that neglects the poor. You see, caring for the poor is not an optional extra. It's a natural evidence of following Christ, of having been saved, of having received the gospel of the grace of Jesus Christ. The choice is to continue in those kinds of ways or turn in repentance 
to care for the poor, to hear the word humbly and to obey the word quickly. The bottom line, friends, is this. We are not motivated to care for the poor by guilt. (laughs) We are motivated to care for the poor because we have experienced the gift of the gospel. No love is really love unless it comes from the heart of God. No gift is a gift unless it comes from the heart of God. As the Spirit works through us to care for those He cares about. And if we are, if we are happy to keep it to us, that is a scary place to be. Individually, as families, corporately, as a body. We are not motivated to care for the poor because of guilt. We are motivated because we have the greatest possible gift. We are motivated by the gospel. 2 Corinthians 8-9 demonstrates how Jesus himself showed this. It says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich beyond rich, infinitely so, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty we might become spiritually rich. Would that, would that we become the kind of people who take 2 Corinthians 8-9 kind of living to heart. So that these things that we easily hoard to ourselves that are about our comfort and our security would be easily, joyfully plundered for the sake of the gospel. So that we might live in a way that is in accordance with what Christ did on the cross for us. Let's pray.